Hi, and welcome to The After Show, a new weekly podcast by Apre, a digital platform that connects experienced professional women with companies seeking talent and diversity. Join our community at apregroup.com. That's A-P-R-E-S group.com. I'm Jennifer Gevsky, your host and co-founder of Apre. Each week, I'll be talking to women who inspire, speakers, authors, coaches, and other experts with valuable tips and insights, along with employers who are hiring women returning to work or just repositioning their careers. Lynn Yakel is director of Drexel University College of Medicine's Institute for Women's Health and Leadership. She is also the founder and president of Vision 2020, a national initiative of the Institute to achieve women's economic, political, and social equality, which will host the 19th Amendment Centennial Commemoration called Women 100 in the year 2020. I'm looking forward to speaking to Lynn about gender equality and what women can do today to ensure they succeed in a challenging workplace. Lynn, welcome to the after show. Thank you, Jen. It's nice to talk to you. I want to jump right in and talk about Vision 2020. Tell us a little bit about the organization. Well, it's a part of the Institute for Women's Health and Leadership at Drexel University. It's a national project that I started back in 2009, and its focus is on the year 2020 and the celebration of the centennial of women's voting rights but we've got lots of goals that we're working on over the decade. And we've formed a really powerful national coalition of organizations and individuals all over the country um, who are working together uh, to get us to the ultimate goal of women's economic and social equality. And in particular, I'm just gonna focus on um, the leadership issue because I think one of the things we're all witnessing these days is uh, that it would be nice to have some good new leadership. And so we are very much committed to 50-50 shared leadership among women and men in business and government. That is a lofty goal, especially where we are today. Um, You know, the research findings on gender diversity focusing on the workplace, I would describe it as dire, and it doesn't seem to be getting better. What is, what is your take on that? Well, I think it's what I've often said over the years, the guardians of the status quo um, aren't really too interested in sharing leadership. Uh, people who have it, who traditionally have been men, uh, really are not uh, as committed to giving up whatever power they have to share it. Now, that, of course, is not true of certain companies and certain leaders, and um It's interesting and exciting to see some of the examples of women rising really to the top of their professions and businesses, as well as going on to boards, because all the the data support the fact that um, having more women in leadership positions makes your business better. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We recently did an event with Catalyst, which is an organization that focuses on diversity in the workplace. And... Um, one of the representatives of Catalyst said something very interesting, which is knowledge doesn't really change anything. So knowing that having a diverse workforce makes your company more profitable, um, makes your culture better, doesn't necessarily drive the changes. But I think you talked about something that's really interesting, which is 
some people don't want it to change. And that I think is the key factor that I've sort of stumbled upon as well recently, which for some reason, maybe I was living in a bubble, surprised me. I don't know. I guess I just thought if, if people knew companies could be more profitable because they're diverse, then everyone's going to be for a more diverse workforce. But it just doesn't seem to be the case. No, it doesn't. And um, Catalyst is actually a program partner of Vision 2020. And we've done some wonderful programs with their MARC program, which is Men Advocating Real Change because it's crystal clear that we've got to have more men in leadership who are working alongside those of us who, the women who've been um, pushing this rock up the hill for decades now. Uh, so, you know, that's, we've done several programs on shared leadership among women and men, and um, they've been very positive. Uh, but I also think one of my favorite lines that I often use in, in talks that I give is that still for women, the door to opportunity is marked push. And we just have to keep pushing. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that line. Um, well, and that, that raises my next question, which is, are women partly to blame? Um, you know, I really don't like the idea of blaming women. Um, I, I mean, I guess the, the reality is that some women make the choice uh, not to push for the top because of their family responsibilities and other priorities. Uh, but I think that is in a large measure a reflection of the cultures of workplaces that are not family friendly and that don't really recognize the complexities of women's lives, particularly in the role of caregiver. And I know you, you talk about um, the motherhood penalty, I often refer to it as the caregiver penalty because so many women that I know, and I actually fell into this category myself, um, end up taking care of their aging parents uh, as well as their children. So at one point in my life, I said I felt like I was the middle of a club sandwich with four generations, and I was the soggy tomato in the middle um, <laughs> trying to... <laughs> right. Right. It's so true. You know, it's interesting because the Gen X generation is really the first generation to be facing having young children because we had kids a little bit later mm -hmm. and elderly parents at the same time. Right. And that's that is being a soggy tomato. It's not easy, um, you know, sort of juggling work and the um, obligations of both kids and elderly parents. Right. And actually, in, in my particular personal case, uh, between in the 11 years between the time mm -hmm. my father died and my mother died, and both of them lived well into their 90s, all six of my grandchildren were born during that time. And so I couldn't believe the uh, competing pressures and tensions and um, calls for help <laughs> you know, that, that were coming from both ends of the age spectrum, some of which were very similar issues. Yes. That's, it's very interesting. Well, you talk about companies um, understanding the role of caregivers for women. And, you know, I was just having a conversation within the last few days with a, a senior partner at a large law firm who is a great advocate for women. He supports women. He loves women um, in the workplace. And he works very closely with an associate um, who he's championing to, to ultimately make it to partner. And she's pregnant and going out on a five-month maternity leave. Mm -hmm. And 
which is what their firm um, allows. And he said, you know, Jen, as much as I'm supportive of it, it is really hard to conduct business right. when you have an integral member of your team who's gone for five months and who's really gone. And I think it raised for me the issue, and obviously this comes up all the time, where it's this is why it is a complex issue. It's right. not as simple as, well, give women maternity leave and you know have more flexible work schedules. Like business still needs to be conducted, and it's it is a very hard line for companies to walk. I totally agree, and in fact, you know that that raises um, the wonderful work that I pray is doing in terms of helping women re-enter uh, the workforce because it may be that going back to the job you had. Uh, isn't the best option. And in fact, I know a young woman who, during the time that she was out on maternity leave, her employer had to divide up um, her responsibilities. So when she came back, it wasn't the same job. And so she just left. And, you know, and now she's in a different role in a different place. But um, it is a very complicated subject, but it's one that we, our society has got to come to grips with because. After all, we are the gender that has the babies <laughs> and we are, right. you know, the, the mm -hmm. whole biological clock thing is a reality. And, um, you know, as women uh, get older and, and try to start building their careers, uh, their biological clock gets more complicated and uh, fertility issues start to arise in terms of uh, the ability to have children. And we, that should not be a problem that we have to deal with, in my opinion. There, there have got to be solutions where, um, you know, women are able to be the, the, the bearers of the children and, uh, and caretakers, although I, I wish uh, it were a shared, that were a shared responsibility, which it is obviously in some cases. But um, it, it is a very tricky situation and i think the, the the point you make is is extremely important we have to recognize that business still has to get done well you know talking about shared responsibilities my co-founder just wrote an amazing article about bringing back the course of home economics and making both boys and girls take the class in school and really moving towards that idea of shared responsibility at home which is clearly not the case right now. Right. Um, uh, my view is that is one step on the road to solving or helping to solve the problem is women cannot be seen as being just always the primary caregivers and CEOs of the home. You know, that it has to be more of a shared responsibility if there's going to be two career people in, in the house. And I would love to know your view on that. Oh, I totally agree. And in fact, um, I see some of that with my own children, uh, where my daughter and her husband are both lawyers and they have three children and, um, you know, they have to negotiate who's doing what for carpools and after school stuff and all, all kinds of things. Uh, but it does still fall mostly on the woman, at least to manage it, which is pretty interesting to me that even if there's a fairly good partnership in terms of, um, duties, uh, it's still usually, in my experience and observation, it's still usually the woman who is the the organizer, the planner, the manager, you know. The, so 
Um, and I don't know whether that's partly our fault or not, to be honest. Um, well, you know, I think it is our fault because that is me. My husband, I have a great husband who's very supportive and, and wonderful about sharing obligations. And he really does want to share. But I think as women, we have this guilt that I'm not a good mother if I'm not the one who's planning and communicating with other mothers. You know, I'm not a good mother if I'm, you know, not at all of my kids' activities. And I think we are our own worst enemy in so many ways. Well, and interestingly, I had this conversation with my daughter and daughter-in-law, uh, who also has three children, and we had this funny conversation about this recently and decided that it wasn't only the guilt situation, it's the fact that we believe we can do it better. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're probably right about that. But... Yeah, we probably are. <laughs> Well, if you were giving advice to a young millennial woman who's just starting her career, what, what would that advice be? Who, someone who wants to maintain a great career. Um, one part of it would be to make sure that going into a partnership relationship, uh, you negotiate the terms so that it's really pretty straightforward. Um, and, and I'm not saying everybody has to have a written contract or anything like that. But it really does need to be, I think, understood up front um, what the, the expectations are on both sides. Uh, because women should not have to be penalized and, and struggle and you know, all, the, all the things that we know go on in order to have a fulfilling career. And I don't think women should have to give up their jobs and careers uh, b because they've got family responsibilities. So this is a huge part of the um, equation in my mind is the just how we get that shared leadership in the home as well as in the workplace. Well, I recently wrote an article called um, All the Single Ladies, Women Who Downplay Their Successes and Why It's a Huge Mistake. And it was an article that I wrote based on research that came out about women in their 20s mm -hmm. who downplay, single women in their 20s, who downplay their successes because if they don't, they feel they will not get married, that nobody will want to marry them. Yep. And I was aghast at that research, um, those findings, because I think it's sad. But I also think that if you're a woman who's um, successful and ambitious and smart, it's not something that you should hide from your partner because it's really hard, you know, to have a career and to be successful. And if the person who you're sharing your life with isn't on board with that concept, you're doomed to failure, I feel like. I totally agree. And I think, you know, that's part of what our socializing process uh, problem brings up is I think women are socialized to sort of take this, the, the, the second uh, level um, and, and that we are not as um, self-confident and as forthright about our successes as we should be because it, we, it should be something that we're all proud of. But that's still, I believe, a part of the way that um, girls grow up in our society is with that sense of kind of needing to put themselves down. Right. And, you know, getting back to the obligations at home, you know, the the number of television commercials that are out there that show women doing domestic housework yes. is 98%, whereas only 2% of those commercials show men 
doing the housework. And it's the messages that we're sending to young girls and young women that those messages are sticking. And so this is why I always talk about it's such a huge problem. It's not just one solution. It's, you know, it's um, the advertising world changing the way they deliver messages. It's the way schools change the message. Um, it's It's a monumental change that can't be done overnight or quickly. Right. And you know, it's funny, I was thinking about some research a few years ago that I, really caught my attention. And in fact, in fact, I wrote a Huffington blog on the subject and I entitled it Pay Equity Begins at Home uh, because um, and, and this the media are certainly at fault with this. But I think parents do this totally unintentionally, uh, which is assign responsibilities to the girls in the household you know, that are unpaid. They're just expected to help with the dishes or the laundry or whatever. And the boys get hired to cut the grass or do whatever, you know, sort of the quote, more important jobs and and they get paid. So there's a message early on. And again, I, I sort of think this is part of what we all could change if we are more aware of it, is that how we treat young children, girls and boys, which is why I think the idea of a home economics class that all are required to take is, is brilliant. Yes. So, okay, so the advice um, on a personal note to the young millennial woman um, is advocate for yourself and ensure that your partner knows your goals of your career and your idea of shared obligations at home. But what about on the career front? What advice would you give to a woman as she's entering the workplace who someday may want to have children Uh, What would you say to her? Well, the first thing I would say is don't undervalue your skills and strengths. I mean, I I know that we all know about the research that shows that women tend to feel like they have to have perfection in their resumes in order to compete for a job, whereas a man competing for the same job may have just a fraction of those skills. And I think we don't think as much about skills that we have that are not on paper um, marketable skills like planning, and again, I'm, I'm thinking now about the homemaking role, so that's not really answering your question, but we need to negotiate for uh, young women going into the workforce, need to negotiate for the pay that they deserve and to make sure that they're not entering at a level that's lower than a, a male counterpart in the same role. Because, and, and that, of course, is an ongoing battle right now, and including with legislation all over the place that's trying to, um, you know, address that problem because we see uh, over time, and you guys have done a great deal of research on this, that as the gap widens, it just keeps getting more dramatic for women over their careers. So it's it's self-confidence, it's pay negotiation skills, um, it's understanding what your abilities are. I mean, I'll give you another personal story. Um, Some years ago, I was interviewing for an assistant in my current job at Drexel. And um, there were a lot of applicants for this role. It was an executive assistant job. And one woman came for an interview and she, she put herself down and she said, well, you know, I've been home with my kids for a while now and I've been doing some volunteer work and she, she really sort of undersold herself and I hired her. And she is a, a, an absolutely spectacular employee because she had marketable skills that she had not identified and had not put a value on. And that's something that I think 
women need to really think about because whether or not you've got a family or, you know, whether you, you're just coming out of school or whatever, you have done things that are, um, are valuable and, and that need to have a worth assigned to them. And what about when women hit what I call is the messy middle of their career, which is, you know, now they're five or six years into their current position and they're starting to have kids and it starts to get really hard. What advice do you give for women when they hit that point of their career? Well, again, I think it's very much about recognizing your value and negotiating the um, situation that you need. And again, I'll use my daughter as an example, because as I said, she's a lawyer. When she had her second child, she went on a part-time basis with her law firm, and she has continued to work as she's raised these three children, but she has done it pretty much on her own terms in terms of working from home, um, you know, and, and, and I found that the professions like the law in particular, although there are not enough equity women partners, and that's a huge issue to address, uh, that some of those professions where women have been rising for a while um, have gotten more open to um, valuing employees and, and providing some flexibility. I want to switch gears and talk about something near and dear to your heart, which is politics. So I'm not sure the listeners out there know that you ran for U.S. Senate in 1992, and you won your primary, and you almost beat out a very long-time incumbent. Tell us about, I would love to know what your thoughts are on that experience and your thoughts on women running for office today. Well, this is actually one of my favorite topics because um, we really, really need to have more women in public office at all levels of government, starting with the school board and the legislature and certainly in Washington. Um, I really feel strongly about the importance of public service. And I grew up in that kind of an environment because um, my father was in politics. And so when you know, I, I gave up my job. I got off of boards I was on. I really made huge sacrifices to make that run, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1992. Um, but honestly, in, the, in retrospect, it changed my life in so many ways for the better. I mean, all the um, things I've done since and all the opportunities I've had and the people I've come to know were the result of that a very intense experience of running for a high office. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think that it's hard for women in particular to sort of picture setting aside their uh, the rest of their life kind of thing um, to do that. But it's also extremely rewarding and very much um, needed. And one of the great new pieces of news these days is how many women now are entering training programs for women who are interested in being candidates for office. And that's all over the United States. Lots and lots of women have come forward. So while the, you know, the, what are the, what are the training programs? I'm not familiar with those. Oh my gosh. There are a lot of them. And um, they're all connected division 2020 in one way or another. There's one that's called She Should Run, 
Um, there's one uh, that's run by Vote Run Lead, which is a national um, online program. Uh, the Center for American Women in Politics mm -hmm. at Rutgers uh, has one. And they're, they're sort of all over the country. And they've been kind of growing in the past, I would say the past decade, actually, um, as mm -hmm. more women have needed training. And by the way, I wish I had had that opportunity back in 92, because so few women had run up until that year. And um, it was, it's not simple to put together a campaign. So you really need people to advise you on how to structure a campaign, how to raise money, et cetera. So these training programs are really quite um, effective and they're helping women look for, for winnable seats also, which is a big part of this because it's one thing. I mean, I took on a very powerful incumbent and um, I very nearly unseated him, but uh, I would recommend to other people that they look for somebody not quite so, so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make it so difficult on yourself. But it's so interesting because this gets to the confidence issue that I think so many women deal with. And I know a fantastic woman who lives in New York City. She's so smart. She's a, she's a doctor. And she is just so involved in the current issues of the day and feels so strongly about what's happening in our country. And I always say to her, you should run for office. And she looks at me like I have two hats. Like, why would, why would anybody vote for me? You know, why would, and it's so shocking to me when, you know, I get that reaction from women because, right. you know, my reaction is why not you? I mean, you're smart, you're involved, you're educated. And, um, and it's, it's always surprising to me when I see smart, successful, educated women who lack that confidence. Well, yes, and one of the things that I found uh, back in 1992, and I think this is still absolutely true, is that there were people everywhere in the state of Pennsylvania, and particularly women, who were looking for somebody new, somebody who was not a politician. I was coming out of a nonprofit leadership role, and I understood the issues that were not being addressed by our elected officials. And I talked about them. And um, so I had women come up to me all over the Commonwealth and say, I have never registered to vote. I've never been interested in a campaign, but I want to help. And so it was quite an experience in that regard. And, and we had 52,000 individual contributors um, from all over the country in the space of nine months that year. Uh, which at the time was a record. I mean, it was just huge. And it was because I think um, it, it's kind of like, I used to say I've never been an overdog. And um, that was certainly the sense of, this, of that race was that uh, I was coming from behind and that a lot of people like to support underdogs. And uh, mm -hmm. so I think we need more women. And look what happened in France. I am intrigued by the French elections and mm -hmm. the fact that we've got now people in leadership there who've not held political office and seem to be extremely popular. Well, let's talk about women voting. So women running is one obstacle that I think we need to continue to, to uh, pursue, but women voting. And I think the last national election certainly shed light on this for me, which is the goal of Vision 2020, I think, is to have 100% of women in this country who have the right to vote to vote. And um, 
tell me your views on this and tell me what Vision 2020 is doing to, to try and reach that goal. Okay, so because of the history of women's suffrage, which took 72 years for these very courageous women to achieve a century ago, I have always been horrified that some women don't vote. And so one of our goals is to educate women about the significance of the history by honoring the past, but also that we can shape the future if we all cast our, our ballots. And I am still amazed that even in this last election, um, one out of three women did not vote, eligible women. So one thing that we're doing is working on educating young people who will be able to vote in 2020. And by the way, the 100% goal is focused specifically on the year 2020 and the national elections that year um, at, as a way of thanking the suffragists and exercising our right. And so it's, it seems to me that we, we need to, first of all, educate people of the, about the importance, young women in particular, that we need to make sure they're registered because we define eligible as registered and that they may, they actually cast their vote. And of course the vo voting rules in each state are different. So one of the things we're working on is identifying the issues in each state that um, make it harder or easier for women at, to, to vote. And we're working with all kinds of national organizations like the League of Women Voters, um, the National Panhellenic Association, the Association of Junior Leagues International, um, the Hadassah, a lot of different groups that are large national organizations that will help get women registered and, and make sure that they vote. So Vision 2020 is kind of the convener and the catalyst, and um, we are really convinced that it's doable. It's a great goal. Uh, and even if we just have significant increases, it would be a huge step forward. I agree. Well, I am afraid we're out of time. Lynn, I so enjoy talking to you, and I wish you and everyone at Vision 2020 huge success um, in the next couple of years. We need all of your efforts, um, and I am sure that those efforts are going to continue to grow before our next, next national election. And I just thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, Jennifer. And I wish the same for Apre. I think what you're doing is really important and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. That was Lynn Yagel, the director of Drexel University College of Medicine's Institute for Women's Health and Leadership and founder of Vision 2020. She has such a wealth of knowledge and I love talking to her about her experience in politics and the importance of women voting. Make sure to check out Vision 2020 online at drexel.edu.vision2020. Thanks for listening and see you next week.